Hello, my name is Elaine Charlotte, and in this podcast, I'll take you on a hunt. A hunt for parasites, dinosaurs, and other model animals in the Oxford University Museum of Natural History. We'll take a peek behind the scenes of this beautiful 1860 Victorian Cathedral of Science and talk to two experts on the way. I hope to share with you some fascinating creatures and objects. But in a way, this is also a personal journey of how I ended up opening every door and drawer in the museum, searching for models of animals. To be honest, I never thought I would find myself back at university doing a PhD after working in libraries and for a natural history society for many years. A kind of seven-year itch, perhaps? And here I am, looking at a gigantic itch mite in glorious 400 times magnification. How did I get here? Well, I climbed some very steep, rather makeshift-looking stairs to one of the attic storerooms of the museum. <sighs> okay, here we are. Unlocking the door. Going in. Skulls and antlers greet us. And there are quite a few large animal shapes on the floor, but they are wrapped in plastic, so not to worry. Uh, switching on the light and straight to another door at the far end of the room. Remind myself to light the step. Here it is, an old wooden cupboard. This is the home of some of my research interests. It seems fitting somehow how out of the way they're kept. The itch mite, Sarcoptis scabiae, causes scabies. This is a not uncommon and hugely irritating skin condition. The mite digs, lays its eggs, and, there is no nice way of putting it, defecates into the human skin, all of which makes it itch. This wax model here beautifully captures the mite's efficient anatomy, its tunnel digging legs and claws. A bit like a mole digging into the soil, except that the mite cleverly dissolves the top layer of the skin, and kind of swims in. There are also its mouth parts, also used for digging and feeding on the host's limb. Catching these mites from an infected person can be as casual as a handshake, although usually more prolonged skin-to-skin -skin contact is needed. The itching is so unbearable that frequent scratching can lead to large infected wounds. It's quite an experience to see something that is so tiny as to be all but invisible, enlarged to the size of a big fist. Well, first of all, you immediately realize how spider or crab-like it is. An arachnid, like other unwelcome but much bigger guests in our skin, ticks. Its anatomy intuitively makes sense at this scale. It tells us a lot about its function, how it lives, and how it affects its host. To be honest, its bristles, a few centimeters long, make me itch just by looking at them. This enlarged model is a work of art. Made from wax, it was probably first produced in the 1870s by an anatomic modeler called Rudolf Weisker in Leipzig, Germany. It was based on the microscopic observations and laboratory data of the leading parasitologist at the time, Rudolf Leukert. So there are other parasite models that live in this cupboard, and this parasite here is called Trichina spiralis. It is a nematode worm, not quite as like, exciting to look at as the itch mite, you would think. Indeed, in real life, it just looks like a tiny worm, only one and a half millimeter long. 
but appearances can be deceptive. This little worm is much more dangerous and unpleasant than the itch mite. It is widespread around the world and has a very neat life cycle. Once a new host, and this includes humans, has consumed contaminated un- or undercooked meat, the parasite larvae burrow into the intestinal walls, mature and reproduce. The new larvae then migrate and eventually encapsulate themselves in the host's muscles, waiting for the next animal to consume the meat they are sitting in, and the cycle starts anew. The parasite often causes trichinosis, an illness whose symptoms include diarrhea, inflammation, swelling and fever. In serious cases, even inflammation of the heart muscle or lungs, which can be fatal. The life cycle of this parasite was described first in the 1850s, again by Rudolf Leukert in Germany. The wax models were made by Weisger in close collaboration with Leukert, probably in the early 1870s. They show the fruits of Leukert's research, experiments and dissections in glorious 3D. So the first two models we have here showcase the adult worms, um, male and female. They reveal the secrets of their inner anatomy and organs in startling big scale and detail and in different colours. Each is roughly the length of a 30 centimetre ruler. But there are five additional models and I'll, I'll get one out. Um, so five in total. And there's one here in particular, but the other five show that, as, uh, sorry, the other four show that as well. It's the migration of the larvae in the host's muscle and the formation of the cysts in which the larvae then live. The muscles modeled in wax look so convincing, you can almost see them twitch. The models brought to life the previously hidden workings of these parasites. Understanding their anatomy and life cycles made it possible to avoid them, to get rid of them and to treat the damage they were causing to the hosts. These models were used to disseminate and publish Leukert's research alongside his scientific texts to teach students of zoology and medicine, but also to educate and, frankly, amaze the public by exhibiting models in museums, fairs and great exhibitions. So, although our microscopes and other scientific tools to make tiny organisms visible are much more advanced today, these 19th century 3D models are satisfyingly tangible. They can be grasped even by a non-specialist. Parasites still have a lot to teach us. Human and animal parasites can be important indicator species for underlying dynamics and problems, immune deficiencies with regard to the individual host's health, or indeed changes in the ecosystem in which both host and parasite live. I've asked Professor Peter Molnar from the University of Toronto to briefly explain why, from his point of view, parasites are still important to research today and how we are using them for slightly updated versions of modelling. So the influence of parasites on the functioning of ecosystems really cannot be overstated. And perhaps one way to think about this, to help you visualize this, is to simply think about sheer numbers. It's about 50% of all species on planet Earth are parasitic on the other half. And yet they are often ignored in, in many, even research studies. You know, if you look at a food web where you see the predators and the prey represented who eats whom, you're going to be hard pressed to find a web that also includes 
all the different parasites that feed on their different hosts at different times. There's many reasons for this, but you know, perhaps the simplest is that an act of parasitism compared to an act of predation is small and is difficult to observe. And this is perhaps also the reasons that the researchers that you're looking into started making these models uh, back in the starting back in the 1800s to help us make better understand the influence of these little critters on, um, again, the day-to-day functioning of ecosystems. Now, if you just think about humans, about, well, hundreds of millions of people are actually affected each year by some parasitic warm infections such as schistosomiasis. And so alone from a human health perspective, it is critical to understand, or if you want to take agriculture and all the losses that come from parasitic worms, again, it's critical to understand for nothing else for our own benefit. And now you add climate change into the picture where all these parasites react in a very sensitive manner to temperature changes, their development speeding up, their reproductive patterns changing, their survival changing. All these disease patterns are also going to be changing around the globe. So again, we need to understand how these parasites functions, but also at a broader level, their population dynamics how many you'll find in nature, how that depends on the numbers of hosts, how one begets the other, um, and how they dynamically interact with one another. And so now this brings us to, you know, a more, perhaps a more modern version of models where we often use mathematics, demographics, and population dynamics to figure out who infects whom and what effect are they having. One parasite that you mentioned actually is... is uh, Trichina spiralis, and we looked at a very similar parasite up in the Arctic called Trichinella nativa, uh, causes the same diseases, trichinosis, it's just a slightly northern version of um, the one that, that is commonly known in agriculture. And it's been actually a mystery for many years how these parasites end up in such high prevalences in the top Arctic predators such as polar bears. You can actually use mathematical models to basically figure out, given the numbers of parasites that we're observing in different species, what is actually plausible? Where could they be coming from to explain the numbers that we're seeing? And so, you know, the, the, the answer is a bit more complex and perhaps we don't have the time to go into this. But the bottom line is that the models that people were looking at at the 1800s were abstractions of reality to try and help us understand how these uh, things are functioning and how this is affecting our health and then ultimately the health of ecosystems as well. And today we're doing nothing different except we're building on about 200 years of research and are now trying to find out the population dynamics of parasites, of their hosts, and under what conditions they may be spilling over and cause um, diseases in humans. Thank you, Peter, for this insight. Right, I'm back in the main court of the museum, my eyes adjusting to the bright natural light from the glass roof. Some models and replicas you encounter in museums like the Natural History Museum in Oxford can be more obvious than others. Take, for instance, this model here of the Archaeopteryx, which is my favourite little dinosaur, bridging the gap between dinosaurs and our birds. Fossils of the Archaeopteryx were discovered in 1861, only a few years after Charles Darwin's publication of On the Origin of Species, 
and were hailed as key evidence for his theory of evolution through natural selection. This eminent role has stood the test of time. Therefore, images, reproductions of the original Archaeopteryx fossil and lifelike reconstructions of what it may have looked like, based on the best data and knowledge we have at the time of producing the model, are to be found in almost every natural history museum. This model here was made by Richard Hammond in the 1990s using actual bird feathers and appears much like any other colourful stuffed bird specimen. If you do not read the label, you might think it was a weird-looking stuffed bird. In fact, research is ongoing to determine the exact nature and colour of the Archaeopteryx feathers, so this model shows us a stage in this process. And if you're not just interested in what the Archaeopteryx may have looked like, but what it may have sounded like, well, the Natural History Museum in London have an audio model of the Archaeopteryx voice on their website, and this is what it sounds like. But there are countless other zoological models here in the museum, and I decided to ask an expert about them. Mark Carnell is a zoologist and collections manager in the life sciences department of the museum. He's also one of my research supervisors. Mark, what would you say? What is the main difference between the animal specimens you look after and models? Thanks, Elaine. That's a really good question. So I'd say the main difference between the animal specimens that we look after in the museum and models uh, is uh, how they're used and, and what they represent. So, um, say for example, if we had a nautilus shell from the mollusk collections, that uh, shell is uh, essentially a data point that's been deposited in the museum and the use that we bring to it today, so we might put it on display, we might feature it in a blog post, we might use it in teaching something about um, mollusk evolution and anatomy. And for as long as that specimen has been in the museum, you know, it might be that uh, some previous curators, E. Ray Lancaster used it in a, in a lecture uh, or uh, wrote a paper about it. Um, so... With our typical specimens, the, the main focus there is, is the renewed use that we bring to them. So that's fundamentally the point of um, a natural history collection when it comes to the animal remains. The difference with models, casts and replicas is that um, part of their formation, and there are some overlaps, but part of their formation captures something of the attitudes of the people who commissioned, made or used the model. And this is something that specimens themselves don't necessarily record. So uh, going back to the Nautilus shell that I mentioned before, it, it's only secondary sources that we have any idea of the use that that specimen had. Um, we're, we're holding it for renewed use, whereas a model tells us something about um, what was being uh, either shown in display or used in teaching, um, what was seen as important. So models are costly and complex, so you're not buying models um, unless you really want to use them. So it can tell us something about um, what was important in the history of biology, what was important content to teach students in a university museum context. And it also shows us a, a, a thought process um, frozen in time or a uh, in the case of a model series, a, a dynamic process. Um, so it gives us much richer information, actually information that is quite poorly recorded otherwise. We don't tend to do a great job in natural history museums generally of recording our own history of how the collections have been used. So I say that was 
that was the main difference. The other difference um, uh, on a meta level, so when it comes to how we approach curation of these, is that biological specimens by far have a more ingrained um, value if you like, in how we view them and use them. Uh, and so with many model collections, um, because they start off as something that you would you know, purchase, um, their value has changed over time. So now where they exist, where they weren't kind of stripped from displays when those ideas became outmoded or when teaching changed, um, where they still exist in museums, they're a really interesting snapshot not just into the history of a zoological group, uh, but also how that group was used. So the value prospect is another important one. And of course, I have to ask you this question, which is your favourite model in the museum? Ha! I knew you were going to ask uh, this question and I should have prepared an answer. What is my favourite model? I think uh, this is the same with uh, I think any, for anybody who works with the collection and, and your favourite specimen or model uh, changes over time. Um, and now that we've got you working, researching on the collections, uh, you know, some of the fantastic discoveries that you've been making um, are, are making it very difficult to pick one particular favourite over another. But one area that I'm museologically interested in is those objects which we currently have in the museum now, which perhaps we consider as uh, props, so things that we've bought or commissioned uh, and are currently on display serving a, a very obvious um, function in our interpretation. Uh, and at some point, some of those will transition to become uh, models incorporated into the collection and in 50, 100, 200 years um, will be of interest like our historic models are, are, are of interest now and so some of those some of those things that we have at the moment include things like 3d 3d printed brains um, we also have a bunch of um, you know very high-end toys essentially that represent extinct organisms um, on display to show what these animals look like and at the moment that's something we could pop down the road and and buy from a uh, from a toy shop uh, or online um, but at some point uh, they will transition into becoming museum objects in their own right, and and so I think that category of objects is 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 my favourite because that's um, part of our our living history. And although we have some control over what is deemed important and what gets preserved now, uh, there's often a lot of uh, filtering and happenstance um, that, that results in the the kinds of collections. Um, fragmented collections that, that end up as part of the permanent museum collection. So it's taking stock of all of those models, uh, props, uh, things that we use in our current interpretation and thinking about how how much of a record they will leave of our current activity um, if they end up as um, museum models uh, or accessioned objects. So that's my broad brushstroke cop-out answer. Great. Thank you, Mark. Material models of animals attempt to make the invisible visible, the hard-to-grasp tangible. They are made from a vast array of materials with often astonishing skill and technologies. They represent what we know about a particular organism at a certain point in time. They are also ambassadors, and this is something I realized when I first held a 3D-printed seahorse in my hand. While it becomes ethically problematic to buy specimens of organisms like seahorses, 
something of it is captured and communicated in a reproduction. So I can still trace its exoskeleton and marvel at its strange symmetry. This symmetry, incidentally, is being analysed for its potential in robotics. Seahorses have unusual tails. Instead of the much more common cylindrical structure, their tails have a square cross-section, and this results in a unique combination of toughness and flexibility. And interestingly, 3D printed seahorses are used in this research. Models are knowledge objects. They are products of knowledge and generate knowledge. To trace the complex map of such relationships is part of the IHSC-funded PhD project Nature of Replication I'm undertaking, jointly supervised by University College London and the Oxford University Museum of Natural History. It is a journey that has led me from seahorses to dinosaurs, to parasites and beyond. From wax, plaster and papier-mâché to 3D printing and mathematical models. Thank you very much for joining me. This podcast was produced by Parasite Podcasts Berlin 2020. The Carnival of Animals by Saint-Saëns, performed by the Seattle Youth Symphony Orchestra, was used under Creative Commons. Some additional sounds were by Sapsblatt.